Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. All right, good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8, verses 4 through 11 this morning. A few weeks ago, I shared with you that one of my army buddies' daughter was entering West Point as a plebe, and this coming week, she is going to be marching back in what's called the March Back from Lake Frederick. It's the culmination of their cadet basic training. This is a significant time for the class because they they come back. They're called new cadets from reception day until acceptance day parade when they're accepted into the Corps of Cadets officially. They've completed their uh, cadet basic training and they're accepted into the Corps of Cadets and all the Corps of Cadets, uh, probably this coming weekend, will march together under the official West Point March. And so for the first time, the class of 2027 will march under that, the beat of that drum, basically, the official West Point March. Something happens this week. When, when they march back, they, they come back not as new cadets, but they're received as cadets. It's a change in identity. We actually play a game with them, the upperclassmen. Remember, we're college students, so we do some silly things. But we harass them, and we, we talk about, we, we try to trip them up based on their identity. For the last six weeks, they've been called nothing but new cadet. And on Friday, they will then become cadets. And any response to new cadet, well, is an opportunity to be locked up and, and harassed uh, because the identity changes. So it's hazing, that's right, we, it's called hazing. Uh, you've probably been there. That's right, I have as well. Um, but, but something happens in the identity of these cadets. Their position changes and their identity changes uh, on this march back. They come back with a class crest that they have designed. It'll go on their ring and it will be theirs forever. Uh, and and uh, they'll come back with a motto that rhymes with your, your uh, graduating year. So they're the class of 27. So something has to rhyme with, with seven hours. The class of 2001 was till duty is done, 2001. And incidentally, I just got orders. The Army has told me that my duty is just about done. I'll be retiring in two months. So praise the Lord for that. Yep. 26 years ago this week, I was in that class, marching back uh, with, my, with my classmates uh, to be received into the Corps of Cadets. But, but the point here, I don't want to miss the point. It's not about West Point. It's not about me. It's, it is about the identity change. Something happens on that march back, and they go from new cadets to cadets. They go from wannabes, basically. Are you going to make it? Are you going to get through cadet basic training, beast barracks, and into the Corps of Cadets and into the academic year, or are you not? Something happens this week for them. It's a change of identity, a change of position. And once they are received into the Corps of Cadets at Acceptance Day Parade, they are no longer new cadets. It's who they were, it's not who they are. And they have to remember that. In the same way, you and I have an identity change and a positional change in Christ. And there's a war for you to remember who you are, and where you stand. And in this passage, we get a glimpse of that, about who we were and who we are in Christ. This is part two of, I I believe will be a three-part sermon, mini-sermon series called Life in the Spirit here in Romans chapter eight, verses four through 11. So let's read that passage and then we'll jump in verse by verse. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 4 through 11, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, that we can come before you as those who are no longer in the flesh but are in the spirit if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in us. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us to discern what is true and what is real and no longer live under pretense or kidding ourselves and, Lord, no longer living in the past. I pray that whatever is true about us, that you would show us. And, Lord, that we would live life in I pray that you bless the preaching of your word and our reception of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So this is why God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. It's Romans 2 and 3. This is why. Why did, why, did, why did God send his son into the flesh to condemn sin in the flesh? In order that the righteous requirement of the law, which last week we saw Paul sums up the whole law. I believe it's in Romans 10, 39. The whole law is summed up, or maybe it's 13, 29. Love your neighbor as yourself, that the law is about love. The, the righteous requirement of the law is that we would love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what Jesus said of the great commandments. Why is it that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit? That's the question. Why, why is it that those that are in the flesh cannot fulfill the righteous requirement of the law? That was Romans 7. In the flesh, you can't fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. You, you, can't, you can't earn God's favor. You can't do what God demands of you to do. You can't, you can't live the way he wants you to live in the flesh. Why is that? Paul's going to explain. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the life is death. A spirit is life and peace. I want you to see here four times in those two verses, the phrase set their minds on is listed. Do you see that? Two, two verses, four times, set their minds on. It's four words in English. It's one word in Greek. It's phroneo. That Greek word phroneo, set their minds on, has to do with a thought life, yes, but it's more than that. It's broader than that. It's deeper than that. It's more expansive than that. It's more, more comprehensive than just what you think about. It's your attitudes. It's your worldview. It's your emotions. It's your motives. It's everything that makes you, you. Your, what you set your mind on is everything that you dwell on. It's what causes you to be you. Now, let's be clear. To live according to the flesh is not to occasionally have fleshly thoughts, carnal thoughts, base thoughts, sinful thoughts. It, it's not to occasionally struggle with lust and greed and selfishness and pride. It's to be consumed by these things. That's what it means to set your mind on these things. To, to live by the flesh is to set your mind on things of the flesh. It's to be consumed by them. In the same way, to live according to the Spirit is not to occasionally think spiritual thoughts. 
It's not to occasionally have a good, pious, generous, kind, loving thought. No, to walk by the Spirit is to be consumed by the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit, to be animated by the Spirit. Paul continues his explanation for why the righteous requirement of the law is not fulfilled by those in the flesh in verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. You see that word for? Might as well say because. Because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Here's why. Why can those that are in the flesh not fulfill the righteous requirement of the law? Because they are hostile to God. Now we need to to feel the full weight of that word. Because I want to challenge your worldview when it comes to, to people that don't believe the gospel. Many of us imagine that, well, okay, we're for God and everyone else is just neutral. What the Bible teaches is that if you're not for God, you're against God. There is no neutrality. There is no Switzerland, so to speak, in the spiritual fight. You're either walking by the Spirit, you're either consumed, controlled by the Spirit of God, or you're in the flesh, and those that are in the flesh are hostile to God. That term, hostile, is not passive. It's not neutral. It implies active resistance against God. Now, why is that? You might look around and you might see people that seem to be pleasant and thoughtful and kind and generous and peaceful and loving. And truthfully, when I was in college, that's kind of how I was. I said that I was a Christian. I did some spiritual religious things. But in my heart... I was rebellious against the living God. And when the creation rebels against the creator, that is not neutrality, is it? That is mutiny. It is war. You see, God created man after his own image. You and I are distinctly and uniquely blessed by being the crown of his creation. And God's intention of man and woman multiplying and filling the earth was not simply procreation and the continuation of the human race, but rather so that like the globe is covered by water, that the earth would be covered with the glory of God through little image bearers. And when image bearers who bear the image of God, created in his image, when we rebel against our creator, brother and sister, that is not neutrality. We're at war with our creator. The reason that those in the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, what else are they going to do? What else did you do before the Lord intervened in your life? But the reason that we set our minds on things of the flesh when we're living in the flesh is because we don't want to be told what we ought to do. The core issue with man is that we want to be the authors of our destiny. We want to steer our own ship. We want to do what we want to do. That's the problem with mankind. We don't want to be told what we must do. So the, uh, the audacity that someone outside of ourselves would express authority in our lives, huh, no way, man. I get to choose. I get to decide what I do and what I think and where I go and how I live and what is right. 
Those that are in the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh because they want to do what they want to do. That's why Paul says, for or because, he's explaining what he means by the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those that are in the flesh refuse to submit to God's law. This idea that, okay, Jesus loves me, great, I love myself. I'm okay with that. But, but the, the concept that I would have to follow Jesus, no. As long as Jesus gives me what I want, I'm okay with that. But I follow Jesus, no, I'm not okay with that. It's a fleshly way to think. Those that are in the flesh, the mind that is set on the flesh, does not submit to God's law. The person who lives in the flesh sets his mind, all of his faculties, his attitude, desires, motives on things of the flesh because he wants to do what he wants to do. No one can tell me that I can't do that or I must do this. He's at war with God because he's repulsed at the concept that someone else would have authority in his life. That is the mind set on the flesh. For obvious reasons, verse eight continues, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, that seems obvious, and yet Paul states it. The mind that does not submit to God's law and that goes to war with God does not please God. Those who are mastered by the flesh are not able to please God. That's impossible. But you might say, well, what about those that are trying? This doesn't seem very compassionate, very understanding, very open-minded. What about people that are sincerely trying? They're making an effort in their own way, following their own course, but at least they're, they're making some effort. They're, they're making some sacrifice. Well, the Old Testament burst that bubble for us in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel, or Saul, set out to make an effort following his own way, following his own religion, so to speak, in offering his own sacrifices when it was supposed to be left to Samuel. And here is God's response to Saul, King Saul, through the prophet Samuel. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And Saul paid dearly for his effort of his own making, his own choosing. He paid dearly and he died in battle and he, his, his legacy as a king was destroyed and David reigned in his place I think Paul's simple assessment in Romans 14 sums it up. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You do something that's not coming from a place of faith, it's sin. Worship, not from a place of faith, is sin. Reading your Bible, not from a place of faith, is sin. Offering sacrifices, being benevolent, volunteering at an organization apart from faith is sin, according to the living God. Does that meet with your understanding of, of who God is? Obedience is better than sacrifice. 
We are justified by faith. Remember, that's where we spent so much time. We're justified by faith. We're made right with God by faith. We don't, we don't earn our way. We don't work our way into his good standing. And for any reasonable person, that ought to be life-giving. Because if you, if you have a high and lofty vision of God, you realize that there is nothing you could possibly do to earn right standing with him. But praise the Lord, you don't have to do anything to earn right standing with him. Instead, you come into right standing with him by faith, by believing. And what is it that you're believing? You're believing that you really are a sinner in need of a savior. That what the Bible says about you is true. That life before Christ, outside of faith, is sin. And that Jesus Christ really died for your sin and really rose again on the third day. And then you follow Jesus in submission. Implied here, if the, if the mind that is set on the flesh does not submit to God's law, what is implied about those or the mind that is set on the spirit? That it does submit to God's law. It says, God, your way is right, and I want to live your way, because your way is, is, is life-giving to me. That's what Paul says in verse 11. Verse, uh, let's see where we at here. Yeah. Mind that I said on the Spirit is life and peace. Right there, verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Say, God, okay, Lord, you, you, you've given me life. I believe the gospel. I, I have faith. And I'm following you because what you're leading me into is life. And what I was walking into and walking in was death. We're justified by faith. We're made right with God by faith. And faith, by definition, is what those who walk in the flesh do not have. It's for this reason that Hebrews 11.6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, you cannot please God. Now, thankfully, we don't stop here in verse 8. We move on to verse 9, and in verse 9, Paul changes his address. He changes the pronouns from the impersonal those, those who are in the flesh, those who set the mind on things of the flesh, he changes from impersonal pronouns to personal pronouns, you. At first, he's describing a general principle of life outside the spirit. And now, he describes this change of identity and change of position. He's speaking personally now to his Christian audience. And Paul says, you, however are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So not only are we no longer sinners, but saints, not only are we no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, not only are we no longer enemies of God, but children of God, but now watch this, we're no longer in the flesh, but we are in the spirit. Something changes when we believe the gospel and we are converted. When we are justified by faith, something happens positionally and something happens to our identity. Our identity in Christ changes what masters us. Paul says, you, however. I can't think of a more liberating pairing of words. 
He, he's, he's describing the unconverted, those that are at war with God. And now he says, you, however, and everything is different. You, the one that is tired of your sin, but you don't give up fighting. You, who used to be a slave to sin, but now you're a slave to righteousness. You, who used to be sold under sin, but now you have been set free in Christ Jesus. You, you. He says, however, something has changed. Unlike those who were controlled by the flesh, unlike you used to be controlled by the flesh, God has done something in you that you could never do yourself. However, what a great word, isn't it? You, however, have a new identity. You, however, have a new position. You, however, have a new reality. You, however, have a new life in the Spirit. The question is, do you know who you are? Do you know where you stand? Now look, this is conditional. Paul said, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, comma, if in fact, that's a conditional statement. And it warrants some self-examination. It warrants an honest assessment. Am I in the Spirit? Is the Spirit of God in me? Because after this, you see that second line? Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. After this, he says, if this condition is not true, what condition? If the Spirit of God dwells in you. If that's not true, then you don't belong to Christ. And remember the context here of Romans 8 is condemnation. Now, Paul is speaking to Christians, and he says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus said in John 3:18, this verse that we so conveniently stop when we recite the most quoted verse in all the Bible, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And occasionally we go to verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save it. And that's where we stop. But what does verse 18 say? It says those who don't believe are condemned already. Jesus removes condemnation. Faith by faith, we are made right with God, and that condemnation is taken away. But those who don't belong to Christ, for what? What do they wait? What, what do they wait for? What is left for them? But condemnation. Hebrews chapter ten struck me the other day. The author of Hebrews warns these people, about hearing the word of truth. And now you've all heard, even already in this sermon, you've all heard the truth of the gospel. And the author of, of Hebrews says that if, if you've heard the gospel and you go on willfully sinning, deliberately sinning, rejecting Jesus, you do two things. You profane the blood of Christ and you outrage the spirit of grace. 
I just want you to think about those two concepts. You profane the blood of the Son of God and you outrage the spirit of grace. And the author says, if, the, if those who break the law of Moses die on account of two or three witnesses, what do you think is going to come for you who profane the blood of Christ and outrage the spirit of grace? And what I, what I thought about when I read that was two or three witnesses was what it took to put someone to death under Mosaic law. And here are now two witnesses that will stand against those who reject the gospel. The profaned son of God and the outraged spirit of grace. And what will be left for you when these two witnesses take the stand and say you heard the gospel of truth and you went on sinning. You rejected the only begotten son of God whom God sent to take away your sin, died upon the cross for you and you said, nah, I'm all right, I'm good. What is left for you but condemnation? So brother and sister, I think we need to do a heart check here because Paul says, if in fact, if in fact, I think he believed it. I, I think he believed that those that were hearing Romans, this letter, that most of them did in fact have the spirit of God dwelling in them, which is also my conviction. That most of the people hearing this right now do in fact have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. But Paul left the possibility open that some who even hear the letter of Romans might not. And so we must concede that perhaps some here or watching online or listening online may not. So while the tenor of Romans 8 is positive and Paul assumes that most of the audience did in fact have the spirit of God dwelling in them, nevertheless, brother and sister, it warrants self-examination. Rather than asking yourself, am I a good person or am I a bad person, I would encourage you to ask the question, is there evidence of the Spirit of God dwelling in me? Why? Lots of people that are in the flesh do supposedly good things. We can't deny that. All moralistic religions have as their bedrock doing good things. And as Paul has shown us in Romans 7, even believers occasionally do bad things. So we can't ask ourselves, am I a good person doing good things or a bad person doing bad things? The question is, do I have, do I see evidence of the Holy Spirit working in my life? Well, how do we know that we have the Holy Spirit? What is the evidence of the Holy Spirit? Well, Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So the fruit of the Spirit. I think about, I, I think about the evidence. I think about like residue, what, what is the remnant, what is the trace of the Holy Spirit? The evidence that the Holy Spirit dwells within me is that I can see growing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Some people would say, well, the evidence of the Holy Spirit is that you have this gift. You have this sign gift. You can do this thing. But the reality is that gifts can be faked. What is more difficult to fake is character that is tested and tried through hardship. Is the Spirit of God dwelling in you? I can assure you that if the Holy Spirit dwells within you and you are seeing the fruit of the Spirit growing in you, that is going to work its way out. It's going to shape, it's going to change how you actually live. It's going to change what you do. But my point is, I don't want anyone to be so hard on themselves saying, well, man, yeah, I think I'm a Christian, but yesterday I did X. And so maybe I'm not. And I certainly don't want anyone to say, well, yeah, I think I'm a Christian because I do X, Y, and Z. Paul says that you know that you're in the spirit and that you belong to Christ if the Holy Spirit dwells in you. So that's the test. Does the spirit of God dwell in you? If so, man, praise the Lord, because there's a whole litany of of benefits that the Holy Spirit brings to your life that we're going to see unpacked in the rest of Romans chapter 8. There's assurance of salvation. There's confidence in the Lord. There's all kinds of benefits that the Holy Spirit brings to your life as he takes up occupancy within you. Chief among them, though, comes from Ephesians chapter 1. One of my favorite verses, descriptions of the Holy Spirit's work, comes from Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Let's pause here. When you heard the gospel of salvation, and you believed in him. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When does, when does the Holy Spirit take up occupancy within the life of a person? The moment that they hear the gospel and believe the gospel. But watch what he says here. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I've used this illustration before, and I'm not a big brand Uh, fanatic, but there are people that are, and you might have a brand, a particular brand that you purchase, and it's important with all the fakes out there that you find, especially if you're going to pay some decent money for it, that you find the seal of authenticity. Without the seal of authenticity, it's probably just a fake. Well, the Holy Spirit is the seal of authenticity of a Christian, The moment that you are born again, the moment that you have heard the gospel and believe the gospel, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Sealed as in marked with authenticity and sealed as in protected. And he also serves as the guarantee of the inheritance that awaits you. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit reminds us of our identity because we are prone to forget. We are prone to forget. We're prone to be hard on ourselves, right? Especially if we're raised up in, in, in quasi-legalistic environments, we're, we're prone to forget, we're prone to be hard on ourselves. But the Holy Spirit, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is reminds us of our identity. Look at what it says in Romans 8, 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You ever need to be reminded of who you are? I do. Many times that I, I think, man, Lord, I, 
I've botched it, I've dropped the ball, I failed again. And the Holy Spirit gently reminds me that I have a new identity in Christ and that who I am and where I stand is as a beloved child of God. And he invites me to draw close. Look at what it says in Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That word Abba is a personal term for the Father. In other words, the Holy Spirit doesn't just remind us that you're a child, because frankly, some of you don't want to be reminded that you're a child of your parent. Some of you are trying hard to forget that you're a child of your parent because that parent is harsh or absent. So this Holy Spirit reminds us not only we're a child of God, but that our God is a personal good father. I think it might go a bit far to say that Abba is like daddy, but I think it kind of gets the spirit of it. It's a personal, relatable, intimate term for our Heavenly Father. And the Holy Spirit who dwells within us reminds us of who we are and who he is and that we are beloved. Amen? Now, I want you to notice here that Paul changes the title from Spirit of God to Spirit of Christ. Do you see that? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Belong to who? Belong to Christ. Belong to the Father. Belong to the spirit, really. In fact, if we look in verse 10, we're going to see that Paul equates the presence of the spirit with the presence of Christ himself. Now, this is not to say that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are indistinguishable, but it is to say that they are so perfectly united that all of the benefits and blessings of salvation flow equally from all three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Paul implies here, by, by using the term the Spirit of Christ, and then in verse 10, Christ himself, Paul implies that through the Holy Spirit, through his presence in our lives, we begin to experience something of the character of Christ in us. We begin to think more like Christ. We begin to love more like Christ. We begin to resist temptation more like Christ, prioritize like Christ, meditate, dwell, think, our motives, our attitudes, our emotions become more like Christ. In a word, we begin to take on the ethos of Christ through his Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So he who perfectly fulfilled the, the righteous requirement of the law, Jesus, dwells in us through his spirit and reshapes our character and causes us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Praise the Lord that what the Lord demands of us and expects of us as his children, he works in us through his spirit. Amen? Think about that. What the Lord asks of us, he graciously supplies us the ability now, I want you to suppose that you realize that despite all of your efforts to be good, to do good, all of your remorse and regret for doing wrong, despite all of that, you realize that you do not have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you. What ought you to do? Repent. You should confess your sin to God. You should plead with him for forgiveness 
and you should believe the gospel. You should believe that Jesus Christ is your only righteousness and your only hope to escape the condemnation and wrath of a just and holy God. You should believe that his death and burial and resurrection is the means by which God forgives your sin and that his resurrection serves as the affirmation that God received his sacrifice. That this was in fact God's means, that it's effective for you. And you should confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved right here, right now. There's no going back and and undoing the effects of all the things that you have screwed up in your life. No, we are justified by faith in an instant. We are made right with God by faith and not by works. You must be born again by the Holy Spirit because you cannot do this yourself. Now, as we prepare for communion, I want to return to verse 8 for a moment. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us to examine ourselves as we come to the communion table, the Lord's table. We should examine ourselves because we want to make sure that we're not profaning the blood of Christ and the broken body. So there ought to be a time of of self-examination, of checking our hearts. In verse 8, Paul says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. My address now is to Christians. You are not in the flesh. An identity has changed for you in Christ. You are not in the flesh. However, comma, you can be doing fleshly things. You can be hiding fleshly sin. You can be tolerating fleshly desires. And what I can assure you is that in your flesh, you are not pleasing God. It, it doesn't matter, okay, so you, you, you do all these great things to make up for this nastiness. You are not pleasing God. You cannot please God in the flesh. But praise the Lord that that is not where you are. So come out of it. You understand? Repent. Stop tolerating fleshly desires because those do not please God. I'm also reminded as as we think about communion of the corporate nature of what we do. the, The American church is so individualized. And it's all about what do I get out of this? Communion smacks that in the face and says it's not just about you, it's about us. There is community. And Paul's rebuke to the Corinthians was about treating the Lord's Supper as if it's just about you. And in light of these two realities that we need to ask the Lord to search our hearts and show us where we might have some fleshly, some lingering fleshly desires and ask him to to show them to us so we can repent of those. And the fact that this is a corporate body, man, I make one more appeal to the You're Not Alone men's rally. Last week, I was kind of off the cuff And some of my emotion came out. And a couple of you talked about how I guilted you into it. And I don't don't mean to guilt you into it. I really don't. But I'm your lead pastor and I'm seeing that there's a spiritual fight and the Lord has said, gather the men and I want you to come. I, I want you to fight with me, not only for your own sin. It's not just about you, right? Pornography may not even be a temptation for you. 
praise the Lord, you're like 5% of the church. Pornography, don't have to deal with it. Never dealt with it in my life. Praise the Lord, 5%, maybe. Well, I'm fighting it and I'm victorious. Praise the Lord, 50%, great. But man, I need you here to fight with us because we're going to come together and we're gonna ask the Lord to, to show us not only individual sin, but maybe corporate sin that we need to bring before the Lord and submit to his feet and say, Lord, purge it from our body. Last week, we had 21 signed up. Last Sunday, we had 21 signed up. I think on Thursday, we had about 90, so praise the Lord. But there's 150 more that haven't yet. Come on, I want you there, guys. I want you to be there with us because we need to go before the Lord Listen, a church that is fleshly cannot please God. We need to repent. We need to worship. We need to be together. Examine your hearts. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back now. Give you an opportunity to examine your hearts, Paul says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. My invitation to you is that you would believe the gospel, that you would repent, you would cry out to God for salvation. And if you are in Christ and you're in the Spirit, the Spirit of God is in you, that you would ask him to search your heart and show you if there's any grievous way that he wants to deal with. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, Follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.